You are listening to the East Point Church Sermon Podcast. We're a church that exists to glorify God as a gospel community that is growing in faith and reaching the world. From wherever you are listening, we hope that you are encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. Good morning. All right, go ahead and grab your seats, East Point Church. Good morning. Good morning. Go ahead and grab your seats. And uh, why don't you go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We are beginning a new sermon series this morning for Lent. And so Lent, are, these are the six weeks leading into Easter Sunday. And uh, this will end on Good Friday where we will gather in our home gatherings. We will, uh, we will memorialize, we will remember the, the events of Good Friday, but we will not mourn for long because then we're going to celebrate the resurrection on Sunday. So as you go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark 14, I want to ask you what you think the most important place in the world is. What is the most important place in the world? I see some sun-kissed people here. Maybe you think it's the Caribbean, the most important place of the world in the world. Maybe you think it's where you live, your home, is the most important place in the world. Maybe there's a special place, maybe where you went to college, maybe the place where you met your spouse or your soon-to-be spouse. Maybe it's the place where your children were born. Where? I want to show you where is the most important place in the world. And and you know what? This is not a trick question because every single one of you in this room have been there. Can I show you the most important place in the world? How many of you guys have your passports? You have an active passport? Okay, good. You won't need it. Here is the most important place in the world. Ready? Buckle up. I'm going to show it to you. I need to know that you're in this to win this. All right. There is the most important place in the world. How many of you have been to the fork in the road? How many of you have been to that moment in life where, where you got that decision to make, right? And, and like, which way will you go? What do you do? I, I don't know. And, and in that moment, as you stand at the crossroads, as you, as you stand at the fork, you know the emotion, right? And, and you feel this, this heightened sense of awareness that everything that comes in your life, everything that comes down the road will inevitably be the result of what you do right now. This is the most important place in the world. How many of you are there right now? How many of you have a moment you're, you're choosing? You have a, a path to take? You see, we face a fork in the road every day. I mean, there could be small ones. Yesterday, I had to choose. Will I eat nuggets or strips at Chick-fil-A? I mean, th- this is a decision. And so, I chose both. I straddled as long as I could, right? Little decisions every day. Am I going to wear jeans or pants? Blue or black, shoes or sneaker, with little decisions, right? No big deal. And then there are seasons where we have some more serious decisions. You know, how are you going to respond to the drama that just landed in your inbox? What are you going to do when it comes to your kid's education? Are you going to ask her out or not? Are you going to make that big purchase without your wife's permission or not? (laughs) These are big decisions. And then there's other times, friends, where the decision you make, where the crossroads you stand at, it stands to change the trajectory of your life. Marriage, divorce, will we be parents or not? Are we going to make that cross-country move or not? 
will I really change careers at 46 and go back to school or not? These are major crossroads, major forks in the road. And so this morning, I want to show you a fork in the road, and it's a fork that we all face. And, and whether or not you, you even realize it, intuitively, we understand, like, this is everything. Maybe you're here and you agree with me. Maybe you're here and you believe like I do. You're a follower of Jesus. You believe in the creator. You believe that we were meant to live with him and for him. That's cool. Maybe you're like me. Or maybe you're here and, and you're agnostic or you're skeptical. You're like, yeah, we'll figure it out one day. Nobody knows. Wherever you are, we're all in the same boat, okay? And the boat is this. The choice we make is this. The fork in the road we face is this. We are ultimately choosing between life and death. We know this. Like intuitively, underlying all of our choices, underlying all of our life, there is this sense Am I going to live a satisfying life? Am I going to live a life where my soul is thriving, where the, where the vines of my life are blossoming? Or am I going to experience a life? Am I going to walk a path filled with just toil, difficulty? Am I going to live a life where it just feels like somebody poked a hole in the bottom of my bucket? And no matter how much I do, no matter how much I achieve, no matter what I accomplish, there's just a leak in my joy, this is the choice we face between life and death. And it sounds like an easy choice. You're like, this is a no-brainer. I choose life. But here's the problem. Which way is which? This is the problem we face. The choice is not intuitive. There's not a sign saying, if you wish to live, follow me. It's actually confusing. It's, it's convoluted. Which way is which. And so for a few moments this morning, we're going to look at a Bible passage, okay? We're going to look at, at a book that is not just a book. We believe that God, he speaks to us. Every time we open the pages, he opens his mouth. And we believe that if for a few moments, if we can just look into the word, if we could listen to him through this text, that he'll speak to us. And what we see in today's passage, we see two groups of people, and each of them stand at the fork in the road. Two groups of people, and as we watch them choose, as we watch them take their path, I believe that God will help us to understand which way is which. As we lean in here, as we tune in and consider their choice, we're going to be able to get to the end of this message, and I'm going to ask you, what's your choice? And so let's dive into this passage here. We're going to read all 11 verses. I want to read it to you, and then we're going to go back and break it down. So this is the fork in the road. If you're ready, say, oh yeah. yeah. All right, here we go. Starting in verse one, this is God's word for East Point Church. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? 
She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's word this morning. Let's go back to the beginning of our story here. Verse 1, it says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Happy holidays. It's the holidays in Jerusalem. Everybody's getting ready. The grocery stores are packed. People are running out to get their kosher meals because it is almost time for the Passover, two days before. And the chief priest and the scribes, they weren't in the grocery store. Where were they? They were seeking how they might destroy him. They were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. First thing we see this morning, friends, while the world plots death, God plans life. If you remember from last season in Mark, Jesus, he showed up on the scene and he challenged their dead religion. And now, in response, they plan his death. Mark, the author, he specifies here, we're talking about the chief priest and the scribe. This is not the Pharisees, right? He's been fighting with the Pharisees. That's like a religious sect. But no, these are the authority figures. These are the people who are in charge of the religious establishment. These are the ones running the temple. They lead the entire organization. And Jesus showed up and he calls them out for their dead religion. He confronts them on their evil motives. He says, you're supposed to be leading God's people toward God's purposes, but you're not doing that. You don't even know God. You abuse people. You're more concerned with profit than prayer. And Jesus said, God is going to judge you. He's going to judge the entire temple. He's going to judge the entire religious institution here in Jerusalem. And so as you can imagine, these people are at a fork in the road. Will they listen to Jesus or not? Will they repent or will they reject him? How will they respond to Jesus' uh, uh, Jesus' teaching here? And so they choose. They say, you know, enough is enough. Jesus, we try to be nice. We try to undercut your authority. We try to get you in trouble with the political leaders. You're not taking a hint. Enough is enough. He must be silenced. And so they start planning how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. How will they kill him? They do it by stealth, right? They're scheming in secret. It says they, they feared an uproar of the people. The city is packed. It's Passover time. Everybody and their mom and their dog is in town. And so they say, you know what? Let's not do this now. Let's not do this in the next seven days because we don't want a scene. We'll just wait till after the holidays are over. And so they're plotting how to kill Jesus. East Point Church, do not be surprised by the hostility. Jesus has warned us. He's been saying for chapters now, he says, this is going to be my last trip to Jerusalem. It's going to prove fatal because when I get there, they're going to arrest me and kill me. 
Jesus has made it clear his entire life that there is a fork in the road. And the world, the operating system of this world, will always and inevitably choose to reject Jesus. You see, there is sin inside of all of us. The world is marred by sin. And if sin had a voice, sin would say, I'm God. But Jesus, whenever he shows up in a place, he says, no, I am. I am. So there's this fork in the road, the sin inside of us, wars against the God who comes and confronts us, and Jesus makes it clear. Don't be surprised. The operating system of this world will always reject Jesus. It hates him for it. And they inevitably say, enough. And so what I want you to understand, what we're seeing here is not just the historical moment The betrayal, Good Friday, is not just a historical moment. This is a timeless principle. The operating system of the world will always be opposed to Jesus. And, bad news, friends, and those who follow Jesus. What you are seeing here is what we are facing as followers of Jesus. The world opposes Jesus and his message. Don't be surprised. Don't be dismayed. We're not of this world anyway, so who cares if the world hates us, right? And so they're planning his death. But here's what's beautiful. Even in this death, even in this tragedy, even in the face of this pain, God is working life. You got to read between the lines here. You got to check out your Bibles. Notice this. This is good stuff. Look what they say. They say, let's not do it during the holidays. You got to remember, Passover began a seven-day-long holiday. Talk about a long weekend, right? The Israelis, they know how to party, apparently, right? Seven days, they are going to celebrate and remember the redemption and rescue from the Exodus. For seven days, they're going to celebrate that point in their history where they were rescued from the Egyptians, where they were rescued from Pharaoh, and they were brought into freedom. So they say, let's not do it during the holiday. Today's Wednesday. It's two days before Friday, the Passover. Spoiler alert, he'll be dead by the end of the week. Let's not do it in the next seven days. Let's wait till things calm down. That's our plan. He'll be dead by Friday night. We get a clue. Mark is giving us a little clue here. Though they scheme and plot, they are not actually as in control as they think. I know this is a tragedy. I know this is a loss. I know we're going to be in tears in a few short days here. But don't miss it. Jesus' death is not according to their plan. Jesus' death is not according to their timing. They plan and they plot, but it is God who is in control. God is shaping and planning human history, even in the face of tragedy. They're planning his death. But it's actually Jesus who's completely in control, laying down his life. They're not taking anything from him. He is giving his life. Even the darkest, most painful event in human history is in God's sovereign hands. And guess what? He will even use that for good. And so they're planning. Let's not do it during the holidays, but God is in control. And he says, you know what? What better time to give my son than the holidays? 
on the day that the nation is celebrating the Passover lamb who was sacrificed to shield them from the judgment of God, I'm going to give my son as a sacrificial lamb for you, world. On the day when the nation would be celebrating and remembering that they used to be slaves, but now they're free, he says, that's the perfect day in my sovereignty that Jesus will come and turn slaves and debtors into sons and daughters. Passover is going to be a game changer this year. While the world plots death, God plans life. And here's just for a moment, let me pause and and, and talk to you about the loss in your life. Because we all experience death in dozens of ways, don't we? Not just physical death, just death, pain, tragedy, losses, things that leave us feeling less than what we were. But here's my, my exhortation to you. In the face of your losses, allow the cross to be the filter through which you interpret all of your tragedy. If God can use the most tragic, painful death in human history and use it to redeem all of humanity, what could he be doing in your loss? What could a sovereign God be doing? Is it possible that he might be working all things together for your good? Is it possible, friends, that you'll come to a point in your life where you go, you know what, it doesn't feel good, but I know that he will work it for good. Is it possible that one day you will look back with the benefit of hindsight and say, man, that was evil, that was dark, that was a death, but now as I see what God has done through it, I can actually look back and call it good. Why do we call the death Good Friday? Isn't that bad Friday? Isn't that tragic Friday? God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Therefore, even in our pain, even our loss, even our deaths, are not a dead end. It's a doorway to life. So they are seeking how to kill Jesus. So let's leave them there. Let's leave them seeking. Let's leave them plotting. Let's press pause and let's pan the camera over and we find Jesus sitting in Bethany. Look where he is. Verse three. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. The second thing we see in our passage this morning, what some choose as worship Others point to as waste. We see this woman and and she's planned a surprise for Jesus. We know that Jesus, he came into Jerusalem and, and he got a little Airbnb outside of town, right? He got a little Airbnb with his disciples. He's chilling right outside of the, the temple in a, in a place called Bethany and they're there. You know, in the evenings, that's where they go back and kick it by, kick it by the fire and they got a dinner invite from their boy, Simon, Simon the leper, Right? You're like, why are they so mean to him? Why are they giving him that name? No, it's a badge of honor. I used to be a leper. Jesus cleansed me, right? And so they're at dinner and, you know, they're eating the good stuff because they just went holiday shopping. You know, so that fridge is packed and they're eating and they're reclining. They got the hummus, you know, and the, all the, 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 the bread, the flat bread. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about, right? And they're eating and uh, the whole time during dinner, you can just imagine this girl's face. She's giddy. She's like, I got a surprise for Jesus. 
I got a surprise. And she's just, I'm so excited, man. Like, I've been planning this for weeks and days. And I knew Jesus was coming into town. And so, man, I just, but then I got a surprise for Jesus. And, and so they finished the, you know, the, the lamb chops and all these things. And, and so now the cookies are in the oven, you know, and you can smell them. And, and they got that look. You know, when dinner's done and you're, you're, you go from active eating to, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's like you're so full but there's one little spot for dessert because there's always spot for dessert, you know, and so they're sitting there and, and this woman, she goes, it's time. So she rushes back into her room and she grabs an alabaster flask. She grabs a jar of pure oil, right? How many of you are into the essential oils, right? You're with me, right? She got the big, she got the family size, okay? And so she comes in she comes into Jesus and she says, Jesus, I have a surprise for you. So she grabs her essential oils and she comes over to Jesus. And, and normally you would just put a few drops. You know, a few drops goes a long way. How many of you know what I'm talking about, right? These are essential oils. I used to think avocado was an essential oil and I've been corrected since. But she takes the oil and she doesn't just, she doesn't just dab a few drops. That would be normal. Just massage it into somebody's scalp. That's what they would do. They didn't have deodorant back in the day. There's no red zone. No old spice, all right? It was nard spice. And so they'd put the oil into the head and they'd massage it. And, and not only was it like an aromatic, you know, deodorant, but it, was, it would condition your scalp and maybe get a little beard oil in there too. And, but she doesn't take a few drops. She's not, she's not portioning out precisely how much oil. She doesn't even unscrew the lid. She breaks the flask. And it pours. And have you ever gone to the mall? You know when you go into like what's that store? Um, uh, the body body work bath body. You know what I mean? And you walk in and you get like a headache because you're like, my eyes are watering and you smell. Like imagine the smell. It's filled and you just smell this stuff. And it's dripping down his hair, and it's dripping down his beard, and it's, and it's on his shoulders, man. He had like a Gatorade shower. Like, he just won the Super Bowl. Where are you going, Jesus? To the cross. I don't know. It's just like everywhere. Look what it says here, friends. She didn't get the generic oil. It wasn't the dollar store brand. You know what I mean? Like, she didn't go to Dollar General and just get, like, you know, oils are us. You know, it was, it says here, look, look, look how expensive this gift was. It says pure nard, perfumed essential oils, pure nard. It says it was very costly, more than 300 denarii. Denarii is a day's wage. This was more than an annual salary. Man, most scholars think that she probably got this as an inheritance. This is especially for a woman to have such a, a, a huge prize. This is probably a family heirloom. And she breaks it. She pours it all over Jesus. Every last drop. And you can't miss the statement here. Don't, don't miss what's happening. Don't, don't miss why is Mark telling us how much it cost. It's because, yes, she was giving a gift, but the real offering was her life. 
In this statement, in this demonstration, she was saying, everything I have is yours. Everything I am is yours. What I have in you is more valuable than even my greatest possession. Even my greatest gift seems too small an offering. I wish I had more, Jesus, to show you my devotion. I wish I had more to demonstrate my love and my gratitude. Yes, she was giving a gift, but don't miss it. This was an act of worship. This was a demonstration of her devotion. She was giving Jesus a gift from her hands, but how many of you know Jesus had her heart? Jesus, I love you more than life itself. And so as we smell the oil in the air here, can I ask you a question? What has your heart, East Point Church? What do you worship? What is that thing in your life that is so important to you that you would spare no expense because you believe that that is more valuable than anything you have in this life? What is your highest prize? Some of us, we worship our health, right? I spare no expense, whatever makes me healthy. I spare no expense, whatever makes me popular. I spare no expense, whatever gives me friends. I spare no expense, whatever makes me successful at work. Whatever helps me achieve, I will worship that. Whatever, whatever, whatever. What has your heart? What do you pour out like a drink offering and worship? And I'm just like you guys, because I know that God is good, but my heart is fickle. Can I keep it real with you guys? My heart is fickle. I love sports. I love achieving. I really, really like comfort. I like things being tidy and organized and feeling like I can control the the aspects of my life. And I know God is good, but there are times where I'm tempted to worship those things. And what we realize here, when we remember the depth of Jesus' love, when we recall, when we remind each other of the stunning reality of all that he's done for us, when we say, bro, don't you remember? Jesus gave his life to make you his. We go, oh yeah. And inside that wells up this heart of devotion and gratitude and love and worship. Jesus becomes the supreme object of my devotion when I remember what he's done for me. Lord, would you capture our hearts? Amen? Man, so she's worshiping. But not everybody in the house likes how she's worshiping. Look what it says. Some people became indignant. Angry. I'm going to let you take a moment and think about who in the house, who's, in the comp- who's at dinner with them. Think about that for a little bit. Some people that are going, bro, 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 a few drops is all you need. This was irresponsible. They are offended that such a valuable resource was wasted like that. Like, I just can't imagine. Like, they pointed to Jesus when they said like that. Like that, like that. You wasted it on Jesus, especially with all the poor people around here. We could have given it to them. 
So they get worked up. They're so offended. They're so hot and bothered that first it started off as like, a, like an internal grumble. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you know the internal grumble, right? But it's not so internal because your spouse can read your face. And she's like, why are you internally grumbling right now? And I'm like, let me internally grumble, right? But they're like, and they're, and they're hot and bothered. But eventually they're so hot and bothered that the internal grumble becomes an external grumble. And it says they literally scolded her. They pull her aside and, and they scowl and they go, shame on you. What are you doing? You, you acting a fool in front of Jesus. You get your flask. You broke the flask. You get a broom right now. And they start scolding her. Because this was a waste. Maybe they're genuinely concerned about the poor. Okay. Maybe. Maybe they really are super justice warrior, and, and they really were, they just had their eyes on that flask, man. Boy, they were going to end world hunger. Maybe. Or maybe it's not about the poor, and they're just offended by something that they see as wasteful. I'm not going to judge their motives because the text doesn't say, but either way, they're wrong. Either way, they're wrong because they fail to see what the woman sees. Jesus is worthy of it all. And then some. <laughs> You see, by calling it a waste, they've revealed their heart. Yo, lady, he's important, but he's not that important. Je I mean, Jesus is cool, but, but Jesus is not that cool. He's worthy, but he's not that worthy. Not 300 denarii worthy. Come on. This made me think of, there was a, there was a time in my life, I was a senior in high school, and I was wrestling with what to do with my life, right? Like most seniors in high school. And I decided to follow what I thought the Lord wanted me to do. And I was going to go into ministry. I was going to go become a pastor. 17 years old, I'm going to become a pastor. And so I go to my favorite teacher, or my favorite teacher, bio. And I sit down with my teacher. And I say, Mr. Nail, I know what I'm going to do with my life. And he, and this is like one of my favorite teachers. He wrote me a reference letter. He's been encouraging me. He called me Dr. Sam my whole senior year. Every time he saw me, Dr. Sam, Dr. Sam, he just an encouraging guy, right? That the teachers do. Come on, you can, you can achieve. And I'll never forget when I told him, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Bible college and become a pastor. And his face changed. And he sat back and he nodded and he goes, are you sure? I go, yeah, I'm sure. And he goes, you know you can do more with your life, right? I wish I was a man in a child body. I would have said, I can't do any less with my life. I would have said that, right? You know, when you lay down at bed, you're like, why didn't I say that? That would have been a zinger, man. But I just was 17, so I was like, I don't know. I got, uh, 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 you know? And he said, Sam, with your grades, with your intellect, with your promise and your potential, and this is his words, not mine, right? With your awesome good looks, maybe. He said... <laughs> He said, you could do anything. He, he says, you could do anything. You're going to be a bump on a log if you go into ministry. And what he was saying is exactly what the people in the room saying. Like, I know Jesus is important, but he's not that important, right? Like, this feels a little bit excessive, Sam, that you're going to like, you can give him, a, you can give him your Sundays, but you're giving him your career choice? You can give him some volunteer hours, but you're going to give him your whole life and to have the final say of where you go? You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna give him your college plans that you had? You had a full-ride scholarship to university, and, and you're going to go to a Bible college where, you're, where your current high school graduating class is larger than the whole student body? I mean, Jesus is important, but 
Not that important. You see, what some people choose as worship, others will always point to as waste. But what does Jesus say when you worship? What does Jesus say when others mock you and point to your worship as waste? Look what it says, verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. As the gospel is proclaimed, the right response is pictured. I love what Jesus says. He goes, leave her alone. Amen, right? Jesus, our defender, he's like, why are you so hot and bothered? Why are you troubling her? Guys, the world may hate your devotion. Others may mock your devotion. Your family may be ashamed of your devotion. Your spouse may be confused by your devotion. But Jesus stands next to you and he says, leave her alone. Why are you troubling him? Shh, says the Lord. Jesus, our defender. He says, this is not a waste. All I see is a beautiful thing. I approve. You see, not only is what she's doing, not only is it a demonstration of her love and worship, it is also a foreshadowing of what is about to go down. You see, just as a body, just as a corpse is prepared for burial with oils and spices and anointing, so too this anointing of oil has preceded his soon-to-be death. He reminds them here, a sober reminder, you will not always have me. Don't forget here, guys, keep perspective. We are on the brink of my departure and my death. And so, shh, don't silence her. Don't quench her act of worship. As a matter of fact, I want you to do the opposite. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, pause there, I just love that. Jesus just showed his card, didn't he? Jesus just showed his intention. Oh, by the way, my plan is that this story is told all over the world. Oh, wait, by the way, my plan is that what you guys are doing right now at East Point Church 2,000 years later is exactly what I've been intending from the beginning. Tell the world the gospel. Tell the world the good news that though the world was far away, God loved us anyway, and he moved into the neighborhood, and he grabbed us, and he forgave us of our sins, and he cleans us up, and he brings us into fellowship with God. Tell the world. Tell the world. I love telling the world. Do you love telling the world? Everywhere that that simple message is proclaimed, there's a blast radius of transformation. And it's just like, it's very simple. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. So all you have to do is walk into a room. All you have to do is move into a community and you just start sharing that simple message. Life change. What did you do? You should write a book. Is it magic? How did you do that? Did you learn psychology or hypnosis or what are you doing to the people? You just tell the story. For God so loved the world, even you, that he gave his son so that you could be his. Life change. How many of you have experienced the blast radius of life change? Resume. Okay. So wherever the gospel is proclaimed, he goes, what she has done 
will be told. Her act of worship will be told as part of this story. Her act of devotion will be memorialized so that random human beings in Easton, Maryland, 2,000 years later, are still talking about this woman. Why? Because as the gospel is proclaimed, the right response is pictured. You see, what Jesus did is the gospel, but what she has done is God's desired response to the gospel. And so everywhere that you tell the gospel, tell her story so that the world doesn't only know what I did, but it knows what I'm calling them to do. Worship me. Worship. She gave her life to Jesus. She worshiped him. She put her trust in him. She loved him supremely above all else. She made him the supreme affection of her life. And so world, just like her, give your life to the one who gave his life for you. That's the response. When you hear the gospel, if you're here this morning and maybe you're hearing the gospel for the first time, your response is not noted. Thank you very much for that information. I'm now enlightened. I'm cultured. I've learned scripture. No, no, your response is to worship. Who is this one who loves me so? I will love him back. That's why in a few weeks we're doing baptisms. We have people in our congregation who have come to a point in their life where they say, dude, I'm done living for myself. He is King Jesus. And they will get baptized as a public declaration of their affection for Jesus. A public act of worship. If you want to get baptized, side note, I'm teaching a class today, 1230 at my office. You can grab the address from the Connect counter. Anybody who wants to know more about baptism, how do I know if I'm ready? What is baptism? What's the point? Anybody who's interested in baptism, come to that class today. Because when you go all in for Jesus, you tell the world and you go public with your faith. Give your life to the one who gave his life for you. Just like her. And let's look at the ending here. It gets crazy, right? Verse 10. And even if you don't know the Bible, you've heard of this name. Look who we meet in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Did you figure out who was sitting indignant in the house yet? Oh, snap. It was the disciples. We're so used to fighting with the Pharisees that we forget he left the Pharisees. He's down by Jerusalem. He's in an Airbnb with his disciples. It's the disciples who got indignant. And so you would expect the 12 to be worshiping like the woman. Nope, they're indignant. And one of them in particular, Judas Iscariot, he is so hot and bothered. Look at that very first word, then. So it's connecting what just happened to his actions. They were indignant at her worship. Then, in response to the next thing in the chain, he becomes infamous. Infamous, In his indignation, he goes to the chief priest and he sells out Jesus for money. Remember they were beginning to plot and scheme? Judas chose his fork in the road. He's not worshiping like the woman. He's plotting with the schemers. And if you've ever been betrayed in this room, if you know the, the, the feeling of that cold blade in the back, <laughs> Jesus gets it. Jesus knows your pain. But more importantly here, his betrayal is a cautionary tale. 
proximity to Jesus doesn't equal worship of Jesus. You can be around him. You can even appear to others like you're part of the inner core. Dude, I've been at East Point for years, man, I'm, and I got the tattoos on my back to prove it. Jesus is my boy. I am core. And Judas reminds us that proximity to Jesus doesn't equal worship of Jesus. Because those of us even seemingly closest to Jesus can have something in our hearts that we love more than him. Something that we value more than him. Something that we worship more than him. Our own autonomy, our own control, our own I'm in charge. We can put those things above Jesus. And Judas had a higher love. He had a greater affection than Jesus. It was money. And here's the beginning of the end. The fuse has been lit. We are headed for a nonstop flight to Good Friday. And as we see Judas slink away in the darkness, we can't help but pray, Lord, capture my heart, show me my heart, and show me if there be any unclean way in me. And that's the story. And so here we are, friends. This is the fork in the road. The choice between life and death comes down to our response to Jesus. We saw this morning two contrasting responses, two very different options. To the one, we had the leaders in Judas. And to the others, we have the woman. And the leaders, they said, he must be silenced. But she said, he must be worshipped. They said, careful not to waste it like that. And she said, I'm eager to worship like that. They said, he's a threat to my control. And she said, he's on the throne of my heart. They said, this man stands in the way of my greatest desires. And she said, he is the way to my greatest desires. And so as Jesus comes to the end of his road, you're invited to the fork in your road. How will you choose? Will you ignore him? Silence him? Reject his message? Thinking that real life is found in other ways? Or will you dare to believe that the very thing your heart longs for, the good that you crave, the satisfaction that you desire, is actually found in him? Jesus laid down his life willingly so that you can find life. And so give your life to the one who gave his life for you. Give your life. Choose this day who you will serve. Give your life. Give your worship. Give your devotion to the one who died to make you his. Give your life to the one who gave his life for you. And that would be really easy to just Clap it up. Let's go get him. Give your life. Give your life. Yeah, choose this day. Ah, we could do that. But I have this problem that I think you have as well. Like, it's very easy when we sit in a sermon to go, yeah, I can't believe they chose that way. But as soon as we leave here, I wonder, anybody else realize, like me, that we actually look a lot more like Judas and the leaders than we do like the woman with her nard? Like, we love it. We, we come and we say, yeah, give it all. Worship him. Nothing's more important than him. And then we get out there and we're like, ooh, like that? And I don't know about you, but my heart, it's like an old car. Just always pull to the left a little bit. 
there's this bent, there's this, this yank, there's this, this inclination to just, when the rubber meets the road, my heart does not have the capacity to worship the one who gave his life for me. I'm just being real with you. I don't have the innate ability to just grit and bear it and be good. And neither do you. What a bummer of a message, right? Go and give your life for him. And by the way, you can't because you're not good enough. Have a great day. No, the message is go and give your life for the one who gave his life for you. And you can't, but he loves you anyway. And when you cry out to Jesus, not only does he save you and forgive you, he transforms you. He gives you a new heart. And he starts to do work in your heart where you find little by little, day by day, more and more, you have this ability, you have his ability to choose. You have his ability to worship. You have this renewed strength to follow him, to repent and not to reject. Your heart is softer. Your demeanor is different. People around you go, what's changed in you? You got religious. No, I got saved. I got help. I've been transformed. Cry out to him. He will save you and he will change you and he will transform your heart so that you can give your life to the one who gave his life for you. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we thank you for this clear picture this morning. We want to be like the woman. We want to worship you. We want you to be more important than anything in our lives. And yet, Lord, we are face to face with our own inability. Would you save us? We cry out to you, God, save me, change me, fix my heart, fix my mind. I can't get out of my own way. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Who will save me from this flesh? But thanks be to God, you give us the Holy Spirit to empower us to live for you. So Lord, we love you. We're listening to you. We, believe, we dare to believe that you love us in spite of our sin, that you save us and bring us into your family. And so as sons and daughters of faith, we will follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to thank you again for joining us for this week's sermon podcast. My name is Daniel, and I'm the music and creative pastor here at East Point Church. And if you were challenged, encouraged, or impacted in any way by this week's sermon, we would love to hear about it. It's your stories that encourage us and what we do, and we just want to celebrate what God is doing in your life. So you can go ahead and share with us at podcast at epeaston.com. Also, make sure that you subscribe to our channel to stay up to date with the latest sermons. Have a great week.